listening, loving, curious, I only like history, business, biology, Colin Let me introduce myself. I'm Gary Fox. I started a podcast called Garland Pepper. Uh, Garland Pepper presents, and so the presents part is whoever I'm uh, presenting is is the person being presented. And today, this is you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Garland Pepper presents podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. George Greer. Uh, Dr. George Greer is a psychiatrist, psychologist, psychiatrist, psychiatrist, MD. Psychiatrist MD who uh, studies psychedelics and the um, and they are doing some amazing research at the Hafner Institute um, where they 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 are studying uh, different psychedelics and in different ways that are really amazing and this is a subject that's been interesting to me for a long time because I have depression and I suffer with addictions and they're working on both of those things so they're very interesting subjects to me. Um, could you tell me a bit about yourself? Um, where did you begin? Like, yeah, I began. I began in Port Arthur, Texas, in 1950. Yeah, 1950. <laughs> that was a while ago. It was a while ago. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, Port so, so I grew up in Texas. Uh, in my freshman year, Rice University, I had an intuition I wanted to go east to college, so I went to Vassar College and had some important experiences that led to my interest eventually in professional psychedelic uh, treatments and, and work and studied uh, religion, psychology there, philosophy, social sciences, pre-med, et cetera. And then medical school back in Texas, uh, University of Texas residency in uh, uh, the Bay Area, which uh, was active with transpersonal psychology and uh, sort of uh, starting to talk about the psychedelic treatment uh, that Stan Groff had done and, and, and that in the, in, the, in the late 70s. Uh, Mid-70s, I spent six weeks at Esalen with Stan Groff, uh, Joseph Campbell, We Chose Shaman, and got really got an in-depth uh, exposure to indigenous and uh, Western, you know, psychedelic therapy. And you're doing this with the great mythologist. I'm sorry? You're doing this with the great mythologist Joseph Campbell. You're yes, yeah. It, it was it was amazing. He, Joseph Campbell was there for a week. Uh, got to have breakfast with him and talk about the weather. <laughs> uh, Stan Groff, uh, Leo Zeff, who became my mentor. Uh, There's a book about him called The Secret Chief. He, he was uh, he was my my roommate there. Um, yeah, but it was a radical thing as a medical student from a Texas medical school, any medical school to go to Esalen where, to exaggerate a little, uh, everything you learned in medical school is wrong. We'll just kind of start there and give you an alternate view of Yeah, they're uh, doing works. mind body work there at Esalen. Everything yeah, yeah. yeah, mind body, uh, body work, uh, gestalt therapy. Yeah, it was amazing, amazing exposure for someone 25 years old. And so that's when I really got interested in working professionally with psychedelics. And then when I finished, uh, Groff introduced me to Ralph Messner, who suggested ketamine work, which I did for a few months and then uh, heard about MDMA, which Leo Zeff was using and found a legal way to do that. As a doctor, I could make it, manufacture it, synthesize it myself in a lab and give it to my own patients. 
uh-huh. without having to ask anybody permission. So that was kind of a, a loophole people hadn't figured out. So I made it with Sasha Shulgin in uh-huh. his lab and gave MDMA for about five years. Uh, so MDMA, you started, that. you're really quite one of the leaders in studying MDMA. Yeah, well, this we put my wife, she was a psychiatric nurse. We published the first paper on giving MDMA to people um, in a therapeutic kind of setting. You know, it was what they weren't there for serious mental problems or serious issues because it would be too risky, but just personal growth mostly or dealing with neurotic things. Uh, yeah, so, so, so I had the only completely legal supply, you know, above ground supply. I think the other, there are a lot of therapists doing it then, but they had underground supplies, right? you know, not, not because a doctor or a pharmacist could do what I did, but only give it to their own customers or patients. They right. couldn't just sell it. Then, then, now, then you're like a drug company. So that was great. We we gave it to about 80 people or so. Uh, no serious problems. Uh, maybe some anxiety. Some uh, couples said they really helped them establish inter- intimate communication uh, more directly than before, and that and that communication persisted up to two years later. And that when we did follow up um, for everybody who was a couple. Uh, so that was our, you, I guess, unique finding, though not a surprise. It was a, a unique finding. So uh, the, we weren't dealing with PTSD, depression, anything serious back then at all. It was more personal growth. You know, meditators came by word of mouth. You know, most people with some sort of spiritual orientation. This was in San Francisco and then here in Santa Fe. Uh huh. Both of those are kind of spiritual seek, seeking zones. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, I've always been uh, interested in this. I mean, I, I watched, I listened to another podcast and it and it seemed to me that you had been integrated with a lot of the people that I've been looking into for years, Joseph Campbell being one of them, um, Richard Alpert, and then later Ron Doss, and, and I don't know that you mentioned Leary, but I know that there's always been this kind of challenge between the medical process and and doing actual healing and exploration of psychedelics and then the kind of um fun or the exploratory playful side of it and i I guess the best metaphor for it and actually it was a true life metaphor is you know ron doss and timothy leary trying to do a thing in new york and then you know uh kesey rolls up with the merry pranksters and you know, kind of throws that blemish on them. And so there's always been this challenge between the medical field. Uh, it, it's to get legitimacy outside of that. Mm-hmm. So how has that impacted you? Well, uh, I am. I mean, I am a medical doctor. So uh, I guess it, I don't think it, I guess I never thought about it impacting me. It's more like, you know, how does, gravity impact me it's just a given to existence this is the way the world is so yeah without knowing what it would be like in a different universe it's hard to know how that would have impacted me uh, that but i would say that um well certainly the laws were a constraint and i had to stop giving people mdma because the dea made it a a controlled substance Mm -hmm. so that obviously impacted me Right. But uh, it was obvious 
from even before starting that, that it was inevitable that MDMA would become a controlled substance. So that was something we fully expected, you know, because it, it feels it's a it's a mind altering chemical and, and it generally feels good, you know. Yeah. People, people are going to use it. It's going to get on the street, which it did. Take that out. Yeah. So that was not a problem, but it did affect me, you know, if there had been another other framework set up uh, for physicians to administer this medicine. Uh, you know, not being a controlled substance or a different scheduling level, you know, lower level, then that would have, that would have been different. But I don't think of that as a, as something that there was any option for it not to happen. It's yeah. just going to happen. It's yeah. But it, yeah, sure. It, it felt bad. It was tragic. It was sad. You know, Camelot was over. Uh, yeah. But, it, but then, then later, uh, so that in 85, then in early nineties, Dave Nichols formed the Hefter uh, Research Institute and uh, asked me to, to join that as a, as a co-founder. So then I was more managing uh, research, you know, managing research projects, managing the Institute, finances, operations. I uh, wasn't doing, administering any drugs or medicines myself, mm -hmm. but uh, sort of like the, uh, the movie, like sort of an executive producer level rather than a director or actor level you know, more the business end of it and getting right. it done and getting the reviews done, the scientific reviews, so it can be really good quality uh, publications from the work that we're funding and then working to raise some money and pay for these studies at uh, various medical schools. So I've shifted more from the 80s, you know, giving people MDMA to managing, administering psychedelic research in the, since the uh, last, you know, 27 years. It's moving along quite well, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Society is starting to come to a different place, mm -hmm. which I think is beneficial to you. Yes, uh, absolutely. So where are we? Uh, like, So your existence really is FDA regulated. You're, everything you do has to go through that. Yes, right, yes. So I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, there are these ballot initiatives. There's one in Oregon that looks as good as it can be. Yeah, but all my work as a licensed physician and as an official of Hefter, yeah, it's all completely within the uh, legal FDA, cur you know, current existing legal framework mm -hmm. uh, locally and nationally. So we haven't needed to change any laws. You know, it would be easier, it'd be smoother if, if uh, there was less red tape and hassle to doing Schedule One drug research. Uh, but that is really a pretty small part of the all overall research effort. I mean, it might add some months waiting to get that approval, but yeah, you know, the, it doesn't change the amount of money really. It just changes some of the time. But that would be that would be facilitated. But it's certainly not necessary because all this research has happened without any laws changing mm -hmm. in the last several years, which is very exciting. I was listening to you. Um on another show and you'd, you'd mentioned that the real differing factor between a a good experience or a bad experience is the purpose within which you go into the experience and explore yeah i would say that's the main factor the purpose the intention the purpose has say i want to you know have fun at a, at a, at a con music concert or a festival or i want to recover from addiction or PTSD or depression, completely different mindsets and which completely affect 
uh, the, the experience and also obviously the setting. You know, if you're in a, a room with a therapist or a guide, that's different from being at a public event where a lot of strangers are there who don't know you or anything about you. Right. Yeah, so that's, that's you know, uh, that was known, I think, before, but Leary really uh, popularized that, the whole concept of drug set and setting as the three main factors of the experience. Leary really uh, promoted that concept, which was useful, though it was not, he didn't invent that concept, I don't think, but it was, yeah, it's still a totally valid concept that all of us use in research and yeah. psychedelic work. Yeah. So it, it's been effective. I mean, you imagine you've honed your tools over the years. Uh, so a, a, let's say somebody comes in and they're suffering from some sort of post-traumatic stress or they're scared they're going to die because they have cancer mm -hmm. and they're freaking out. And, you know, I was reading that there are some sessions that take a couple, couple sessions because they don't mm -hmm. work through all this stuff. What, what does one of your therapists do during this process, I notice it's a lot of sitting and waiting. Mm -hmm. But what if somebody's having a traumatic situation? How how do they intervene with that? Yeah, so uh, so take a few minutes. MD, MDMA is well. First of all, it, at present today, those sessions legally are only taking place in in a research as part of a research study at a university in this country, and uh, so there's all this incredible research preparation, screening the person, administering all these psychological tests to make sure they're not at risk of a psychotic break or whatever, any health risk, blood pressure. So I have a lot of attention before and then hours of, uh, some hours of just counseling preparation for that uh, pretty much day long psilocybin or MDMA session. It's called the preparation phase, which is more, usually more than one meeting, two or three meetings, a couple of hours. Then there's the all-day session day, and I'll come back to that. Then there's the integration sessions, which can also be hours to help the person integrate their insights, their emotional shifts, their uh, perceptual shifts, you know, their big picture shifts about who they think they are and what their purpose is, to integrate those into their everyday life and help them improve their functioning in relation to their what, addiction, depression, trauma, whatever. So that's the procedure. Now, during that long session, it's very different between MDMA and psilocybin. MDMA at the doses given 100, 125 milligrams does not really interfere with logical cognition, thinking, reasoning, <laughs> uh, conversation, communicating. In fact, people can become very talkative with MDMA because it has a sort of a stimulant property. So the, the uh, training, the therapy training that MAPS does for MDMA is very extensive because there's a lot of talking, a lot of patient interaction, uh, helping them you know, verbally through re-experiencing, reframing, emotional releasing their initial trauma or traumas in most cases. So lots of verbal interaction, lots of subtle therapy going on. So uh, you know, doing psychotherapy with someone on MDMA is very, very different from someone who's not on any, any psychoactive drug. So there are a lot of training, many hours of training for that, which is appropriate. I, and I'm involved in that. I've taken the training. I will be, uh, once the pandemic is, is softened out, be administering MDMA to therapists in training 
to have their own experience, you know, on, on the client end. Psilocybin yeah. so is very different because during that session, the peak of it, people are not really verbally, cognitively competent to uh, engage in, a, in an intellectual dialogue or conversation. I mean, they can say, I'm scared, I need help, or they can, you know, basically describe their experience in a few words and let, let the therapist know how they're feeling, what's happening, if they're struggling, uh, whatever, you know, I need to go to the bathroom. So there's not, so during psilocybin sessions, mostly silent, you know, some the entire time, but about a, uh, in the cancer studies, like at Hopkins and NYU, I think about a third of the people uh, had significant anxiety at some point during their psilocybin session. And you know, these were all cancer patients, you know, facing death. And so probably it was a lot around that, but not always. And the therapists, part of their training and then their experience as they've done this, because uh, more, because some of these therapists have done hundreds of sessions, you know, like in Johns Hopkins and in Zurich, et cetera. So uh, it's just general support. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's just one of the things Leo would do, he would just grab the person's hand to sort of ground them in their body like a, like you're in your body, I'm your body, I'm here, you're not alone. Uh -huh. That's very reassuring. So they're, and they're just pretty much, stand, pretty much standard, you know, uh, uh, breathing, breath relaxation, body scanning, uh, visualization, relaxation techniques are used and just personal support. And all the, uh, the therapeutic alliance relationships has been established in the screening and the preparation so the client has, at this point, there's a lot of basic trust between the client and the therapist. And so in, the, in the, those cancer studies, basically all, the, all the, the participants got through that anxiety by the end of their session. So by the end of their psilocybin session, you know, they were okay. Uh, so that's, that's oh, wow. the difference. And that's, and that's sort of what, how it goes, you know, in a, in a nutshell. Pretty long lasting results. Uh, yes. I've yeah, for these, yeah. So you talked about sessions. So in the cancer studies for anxiety and depression, they had one session. In the current alcohol and alcohol addiction studies, uh, they're having two sessions. In the in the pilot study for smokers, just 15 people, no placebo, they had three sessions. Now in a placebo study control study, they're having just two sessions at Johns Hopkins because they're results were so good with three they didn't feel they need three, needed three but you know it's more expensive to do more sessions you know yeah. raises the cost of study tremendously i think i was looking into those sessions now the placebo was a micro dose or a real dose so they had a feeling but not the actual well it, it in the cancer study at hopkins they used a microdose, and they had to lower it i forget from maybe one three or one down to half a milligram because people experienced consistently something with their sort of low dose. So they lowered it. So they experienced really nothing from the dose itself. Yeah. Uh, in NYU uh, cancer thing, uh, they used uh, niacin as a placebo, which causes flushing some physical symptoms. Sure. Um, the current alcohol study, the placebo is Benadryl. So it gives people a high dose of Benadryl so they feel altered kind of dreamy, you know, maybe sedated. So they know they, in other words, they know they got a drug. Right. It's right. just not psilocybin uh, at all. Uh, yeah, so different, 
different placebos uh, are used uh, in the past. An older study of normal people, uh, Ritalin, I think, yeah, Ritalin was used as a placebo. It's a stimulant, you know, for ADD. Mm -hmm. uh, so different approaches are used uh, that way for, for the sessions and placebos in research. Those are really good. What's that? The smoking cessation numbers are really pretty high. Yeah, the, so the pilot paper was out, came out a few years ago, 15 people. I mean, there's the graph, it sort of, here's their level of using cigarettes. It just drops to zero. It's just like, they just quit. And, you know, after, I think it was a year follow-up, uh, most of them are still in, in remission. And, uh, you know, success rate, I mean, two or three times that of the best other success rate with, say, Chantix, the, the gum, nicotine. Mm -hmm. therapy yeah so you know it's only 15 people and generally in studies when you do later larger studies you know the, the statistics are less dramatic with more people yeah uh, but still it was just off off the chart you know for success and and lasting you know after these well three sessions for smokers for the cancer patients and you know all these hours of therapy one dose of the drug and their anxiety and depression significantly reduced for the whole six month follow-up and a little beyond. So yeah, really unprecedented in psychiatry to have a single treatment that lasts so long. You know, like if you have surgery, you know, if you have surgery and they remove your tumor and you don't have cancer, you know, you're cured essentially. Uh, with electroconvulsive therapy, you know, shock therapy, that's really the only other interventional treatment in psychiatry, but that's, you know, maybe a dozen to 20 sessions is extremely effective for de depression, you know, the most effective, but very expensive, very involved, you know, you have to have a, an anesthetic, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, so, but there are really no other procedures in psychiatry that, that have shown or drugs that show blasting results long after there's no drug in, in the person's body. And that's psilocybin. Psilocybin and MDMA. Yeah. MDMA also. So yeah, for PTSD. So MDMA almost is like you're going back to the talking cure, but it's hyper. Yeah, it's it's boosted MDMA. It it reduces we what we we called it back in the 80s was it, it reduces or blocks the emotional it, it blocks the the nervous system's fear response to a perceived emotional threat. It's just hard to be afraid. So would that that place between the amygdala? What is that? The well, well, the amygdala does a lot of things, but it, it is it is the sort of the center where the experience of fear is initiated in the amygdala. So the amygdala, you know, in recent years on scanning, uh, the amygdala is, is quieter when people are on MDMA. Is the hippocampus you know, scan during that? Is the hippocampus more vibrant and, and able? To uh, you know, I don't know. The hippocampus it does a lot of things. Uh, and it's very small. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm not a neuroimaging expert. I don't try to store in my memory all the parts of the brain that are affected by these because different studies show different things. And, uh, um, but it's more, it's what's been said a lot is the networks in the brain. You've heard of like the default mode network. These networks uh, with psilocybin are definitely altered and, and, and in ways that uh, in some ways similar to uh, meditators who have uh, fMRI scans for networks mm -hmm. and uh, studies with meditators have shown uh, 
with psilocybin that uh, that they're meditating. You know, these are long-term meditators. Their meditations improved in the weeks after they did it with psilocybin. It sort of helped them. I don't know, anchor it maybe. Mm-hmm. So there is a connection with psilocybin and you know mindfulness type meditations. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. So you you uh, you're passionate about this. It's obvious, and you've yes. you've given your life to it. Yeah. Uh, and it it I imagine it anchored when you were doing the MDMA tests. Were there certain things when you first started doing testing with people where you're just like, this person came in a miserable wretch and they left just a much better and it, and, and it just kind of flipped your thinking on the whole thing. Well, I've, uh, we didn't see anybody who was a miserable wretch. Mm. We would consider them too, um, volatile, disturbed or, or mentally ill or too at risk mm-hmm. because at that time there was, the only human published human research on that was, I think, one sentence in a paper by Shulgin and Nichols that said it MDMA evokes sort of a therapeutically friendly state of mind, you know, something like that. That was it. And then Leo Zeff had been using it for a while, but only with, you know, healthy, pretty well put together people. So, um, yeah, we were extremely safe. We, we thought of every negative thing that could possibly happen. You might get a divorce. You might go crazy, uh, you could have lasting problems. And we thought if that scares them away, that's fine. Because this is not a time to take risk with this brand new drug outside of all the FDA stuff, you know, because it's was hardly been used in a few hundred people at that time. Yeah, that's a little scary going into something like that. Yeah, so we were just super, super as careful as we could be screening, you know, especially around blood pressure, medical issues, psychiatric issues. If anyone had ever been disabled by a mental problem or emotional problem, even if they didn't go to the hospital, we did not give them MDMA. Okay. So now we're, they're looking at using it, and I think the VA is using using it? Well, the the uh, the Bronx VA uh, maps just announced the Bronx VA is going to be doing research with it, and that would be the first VA to use MDMA in a VA research project. Okay. Yeah, that's about to get going now. It's just in the Maps newsletter. Do you get the Maps newsletter? No. Oh yeah, you can just go to Maps and sign up for their newsletter. It has a lot of great information. So, yeah, it's going to be starting uh, pretty soon, I think. Well, uh, depending on the pandemic and stuff, I assume. Mm-hmm. You've got some big hitters out there um, sponsoring uh, mushroom treatment therapy uh, financially. Uh, the one that comes to mind is Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's involved because he has suffered from depression. Which is actually what brings me in here. I mean, I did well for a while. You mentioned that earlier. And, you know, it's it's okay. I didn't quit smoking. Okay. But I felt okay about smoking then. Yeah, I didn't feel as bad about it. You know, so, okay. Right. okay. Um, but I also felt like I was in a fog. Like I wasn't present as present yeah. as I could be in life at some level. And it was hard to define because you appear to be present and you are engaged. Right. You that seemed kind of disengaged. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that was. Well, depression does that. I mean, depression, you know, there's being sad. Yeah. Uh, 
and depressed people can be sad, but depression is generally a sort of an absence of emotion, an absence of interest in things, right? An, an inability to, to inability to feel joy, just you know, pure joy. And so people are emotionally more flat, you know, in in more than negative flat. And uh, the high doses of SSRI antidepressants can also make people emotionally flat, but in sort of a neutral flat place as opposed to a, def a depressed yeah. flat place. But, but there's been some uh, research to show that in the brain, uh, what psilocybin is doing in the brain regards to depression is more activating uh, in, in, compared to sort of uh, the flattening or damping down symptoms that come from the regular antidepressants. Mm -hmm. So the psilocybin is not sort of suppressing depressive symptoms. Uh, we think it's changing some of the basic uh, neurophysiology that causes depression, but you know, because the recovery lasts so long. And most people think it's partly biological, we don't know how much, and partly psychological, because you know, a depressed person, you have these negative tapes that just repeat interminably, you know, and the psychedelics just physically kind of stop that. And, and it, it does correlate with the default mode network, but you talk to neuroimaging experts, it's like, it's, it's not just, it's not that simple. You know, it's not just default mode network equals your, your tapes in your head. It's not that simple, but the, it, the mind does get quieter. And so people are able to have thoughts outside their own personal personality box think of themselves in a different way as opposed to I'm not a failure. I'm not an addict. I'm, you know, I'm a blessed human being, you know, I'm saved or whatever. And that we think has uh, important and, and alcoholics, you know, hitting bottom, you know, spiritually hitting bottom in alcoholism, yeah. people have a spiritual awakening. So it's very parallel to that. And so with more research, we'll understand, maybe tease out the neurophysiological psycho-spiritual things, but that's, uh, you know, that's what's fascinating because it's a mystery about what is, what are we essentially as human, human beings? Right. You know, it gets to those really interesting questions, which is part of the passion people have in this field. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Seems like a never ending question. I have the same question right. myself all the time. I, I don't know what I am. I don't know what this is. You know, I'm at some level, I'm confused <laughs> as to where I stop and where it all begins and, and ends, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, join the club. Oh, good. So, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of the problem is a person can like say in the peak of a psilocybin mist of experience, there's this one with divinity or God or whatever be whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And you know, there's no words there. It's an ineffability. You can't put it in words. And then when people come down and their personality comes back, their mind starts working. Then the words just you know our minds just create these words. We can't help it. The words start happening, start labeling things. Unexplainable. Yeah, and the words start labeling things, and it becomes differentiated from undifferentiated. And so people, you know, in this field, we all know this, and people who've had a lot of experience know that. But, I mean, you and I are talking now. Yeah. You know, if I just, if we just stared at each other. Yeah. I mean, we'd probably get bored in a while. There's no story so, like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, I see God in your Zoom face, you know. I see God. Uh, so talking is important for to connect. So. Okay. Uh, so it's healing. 
and that's what you've chosen as a profession and you've chosen yeah. an unconventional way to go about it and the reason is because you've seen results throughout your life yeah like like i went to well early on i went to um i guess leo's i went to three of leo, three of leo's groups about 10 people having different medicines you know all day long friday night prep saturday medicine sunday integration and um yeah, and, and, and personally went through some very healing experiences, but saw in other people in the group go through just amazing psychological, emotional, spiritual healing that never saw anything even remotely close to that in my psychiatry training. Um, and even, you know, at Esalen, there was a lot of, uh, you know, big emotion releases and breakthroughs from their techniques, body work and stuff. Um, which were which was also was more impressive than I would learn learned in just standard psychiatry, but still with the psychedelics, it really took it a level further. And you know, a whole weekend spending all day and a group of people that largely knows each other in the group setting, very supportive and just feeling loved and accepted for whatever goes on. People going to really extremely difficult dark places, getting stuck and lost, and then uh, exalted spaces. So uh, that that was quite an eye-opener uh, and just made me more, even more feel committed, like, hey, this is this is something to do. And in fact, I did that. I was thinking, should I, uh, at that time, should I become involved in psychedelics, the MDMA thing? And so went to Leo to sort of answer that question, is there some potential here in psychiatry? And the answer was like, duh, of course, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, you know, I think I did what anyone would have done in that situation. I just happened to be in it. You know, I was the only psychiatrist in the group. Right. At that time. Yeah. Out, out places we it, connections are up, and you know, sometimes it's just being in the right place at the right time, right moment in history where this is happening, and you meet the right guy, and there right. you go. Now you're now you're both like you're rolling in a whole new world. Um, with an old school moniker, you know, doctor. Yeah, right. And that's that's a nice sandbox. It it, it is. It it was. It was. Uh, it was pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's no government, no permission. You just had to be safe, you know, careful. And I had a peer review group, blah blah blah. But yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I made MDMA in Sasha's lab, and you know, two three weeks later, I'm giving it to somebody and. And then uh, now, 35 years later, after we had to stop, well, 40 years later, after we started, uh, MAPS is still getting permission to, to use it for patients. You know, they're, they're getting close, but it's going to start next year treating patients. Uh, ringing, sorry. But wow, wow how, how, that's pretty darn different. <laughs> Two weeks versus 20 years. Yeah, it is. It's very different. Yeah. So but I, I understand all that. You know, you get a lot of people, you have to be safe. And so I, I'm not complaining about it. It's just, that's just, you know, that's the world we live in and how long things take. It does take a while. It did. And a lot of money. A lot of money is a big part of it. Tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So where's the most interesting research happening? Well, I, uh, my opinion, interesting. So interesting. That's an interesting question. 
So Hefter does two things. We do research, we call basic science in normal people. How does the brain work? How can how psychedelics affect the brain and subjective consciousness? And we also do treatment research, treating patients who are suffering from depression or addiction or obsessive compulsive disorder or AIDS or whatever. So I would say in the, in the treatment area, the most interesting is definitely addiction uh, because uh, number one, addiction is such a, an enormous public health problem in this country, especially alcohol. And it's so big, people just forgotten about innovation, you know, and, and, the, and the establishment research funders, uh, National Institutes of Health, or just are not funding that as a treatment yet. Uh, but I think they will. So, uh, but the results, if, if, if they're, you know, half as good as they've been or a third are going to really change things. And so eventually you have people in uh, these rural areas that really, you know, small town rural areas that really suffer from alcoholism, methamphetamine, you know, opioids, yeah. and don't have access to medical care or good insurance. Um, if those people start receiving uh, and getting, you know, cured or recovering from addiction with psilocybin, their families and their friends are really going to take notice. And that's going to really, I think, change people's opinion to see these medicines as medicines rather than drugs that damage your brain. Yeah. You know, and that because that, you know, someone you see, you see a family member or yourself having a new quality of life, that's way more impressive than anything you read in the newspaper or watch on TV. Mm -hmm. So that's going to change, I think, the public uh, outlook uh, on that. Now, in terms of interesting and basic science, which, which kind of relates to patients, actually, the most interesting thing to me is something that's it's sort of on hold right now. But looking at, um, let me back up, the, the, the method for, for therapy for psychedelics has been the same for 50 years at Stan Grop pretty much divide uh -huh. headphones and eye shades and just surrender and go with it. Okay. No matter what your problem is, it's all the same for the session itself. And be in room with safe people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, now there's the idea to take uh, therapies like sort of brain exercise therapies or computer learning or whatever, and do those under the influence of psilocybin because uh, all psychedelics and psilocybin promote neuroplasticity or rewiring, you know, breaking uh, dysfunctional nerve connections and making more positive functional connections stronger and making the, the negative ones, you know, like drug craving connections. I want cocaine, I want cocaine, making those weaker by doing things on the drug that, that do that during the drug state. So that is very fascinating because that would be the first time uh, a psychotherapy thing with psychedelics has come from data from experiments, you know, physical experiments with people. So they'll do it with normal people first and then, and then uh, people with those problems. Like, and one of the first things they want to do is addiction, people with alcoholism. Can we help them, you know, not remember wanting to use alcohol, you know, forget those patterns oh. and use more patterns like I'm successful, I'm not guilty. Guilt leads to alcohol use often, which just, it's a you know negative spiral. I guilt. I'm guilty. I drank. Uh, I drank, so I'm guilty. Blah blah blah. You know. Uh, so that's exciting to me. And then and then there, I, I'm not so. Uh, 
up on it, but just studying, you know, what does psychedelics affect consciousness and consciousness researchers like at University of Wisconsin and uh, Christoph Koch in the uh, Paul Allen Center and uh, his name will come to me at University of Wisconsin or they're consciousness researchers primarily, mm -hmm. you know, but now they're starting to want to use psilocybin as a tool for them to understand consciousness in the brain and, you know, the hard question of consciousness. I mean, how is it that we have awareness and we have a bodies and, you know, I can just, how, how do I do that? Yeah. Nobody <laughs> told you who knows how to do that, but I mean, some people say the urge to do it happens before the thought to do it. So, but who knows? So, so that kind of research is very interesting. It's not something I know a lot about, but philosophically, it's very interesting and could have some important, uh, you know, findings uh, at some point. Yeah, yeah. It's it. When you start getting into that level, um, it's hard to measure stuff. Very hard. Yeah, it, it, science can only involve things that can be physically measured. And you can, you know, you can take people's reports. They all say the same thing, then it sounds like you're valid on psychological tests. But you know, a physical measurement, we just don't have. You know, the physics or engineering is not developed. There's so much more going on that we can measure. That's a really excellent point. You can measure outcomes of an experience, though. Like Yeah, you can measure, you know, someone fills out a psychological test and they have a score and that's quantitative and it's measured, even though it's a subjective report, it's still, it's like measurement of what they said of their behavior. Yeah. So, and it's considered valid. So I've been hearing a lot about couples and and you know, people getting MDMA and getting together with a friend who they trust and doing couples therapy. Um, and I and I've heard good things about it. Yeah. And uh, what's your been? What's been your experience in? Well, that was that was the uh, the thing we found uh, was most common in our first papers was that the couples who did it, you know, felt this communication persisted. Uh, for a long time, and that was a surprising. Though that's something that my wife and I experienced ourselves. That we were able to just say things more directly that would be maybe embarrassed or afraid we'd hurt their feelings or something, or be too vulnerable, just like something to be afraid of. You know, just right. cut the BS and just say what's on your mind. It made it a lot easier to do that and get about our, our old habit of you know walking on eggshells maybe and being polite. And we were we were not married yet. We were sort of a new couple at that point. So, um, yeah, that happens. So it's, it's happened. So it's easy to see how it'd be helpful in, in people already in couples therapy trying to improve their communication. But I've also saw people doing it on their own, you know, like boyfriend, girlfriend, and they would like, or maybe starting today, they'd fall in love on MDMA, sure. get in a very intense relationship, and it'd just be a, you know, astounding failure because they only got along on MDMA. Right. And they did not get along in regular life and just needed, they needed a lot, they, if they wanted to, they would have needed a lot more therapy on their personalities and communication to get that relationship to work, but decided, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not working. So there's that, there's that danger. And uh, in terms of recreational unsupervised use, you know, falling in love and having sex and, and then you come down and, you know, the coming down of MDMA can be dark and depressing and negative thoughts, you know, the last part of it or the next day. And uh, people don't have a strong relationship that can kind of go south on them. 
So the recovery is a little dark and a little. It can be. I think it a lot depends on the person's nervous system. Some people have just get kind of sleep your lower energy the last half. Mm -hmm. And but if they're there talking to the therapist, it's going to, you know, that can be a really uh, fruitful period to do some talk therapy to release things. And they're starting to experience uh, dysphoria, discomforts. Because mm -hmm. on MDMA, it's like, I don't feel anything bad. There's nothing to work on. You know, right. so when they start to merge in and start to feel the stuff that they were feeling before. That's a, a very ripe time for deep emotional work and letting go of old ways and old emotional patterns as that sort of comes back into experience. So how long does, does that last? The uh, that's, it's usually about three hours of the peak part and then three hours of the lower energy part and around six hours. Uh, mostly people can tell they had a drug that day, but it's mostly, mostly back to normal. Maybe not, you know, sort of a, a drain, physically drained or tired, but pretty much normal thinking, feeling. Yeah. So it kind of wears out your serotonin or something. It wears out your. Yeah, it, do, it does. It does deplete serotonin. It's raw related to dose and in, in animals given, you know, 10 times a dose it depletes it. You can measure it. And, and uh, but, they don't even change our behavior, but yeah, serotonin is depleted and uh, probably dopamine too. It, it releases serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And uh, they think the toxicity in animal is more the re reuptake of, of uh, metabolites, thing that the liver has turned MDMA into, it gets sucked up back in the neuron and causes problems. So the interesting, the SSRI medicines block that reuptake and uh, prevent the neurotoxicity. So sometimes those are used uh, by people to uh, prevent, help prevent serotonin depletion. Okay. But yeah, that can be a bummer. It's not, if people do it, you know, every week or multiple doses on weekends, that can be a chronic problem. And I've seen some people like that, but they're remarkably, you know, not impaired cognitively than you would think from taking you know, just tons and tons of MDMA for a year or two you know, 10 what, times normal yeah. quantity, you know, over time, you know, so. It's bad for the, so I remember it would be in uh, years ago, uh, probably while you were still studying and there were raves going on in New York City and mm -hmm. Donahue had done a show on it. And there was a yeah. theory out there at the time that uh, it would deplete your spinal column in, uh, fluids. Right, yes. Completely no basis for that. Completely no basis for that. Likewise, no basis for LSD uh, destroys your chromosomes. Right. Yeah, but you know, you can see if someone feels down and low energy, like, oh, my, maybe my spinal fluid drained out and that's why my energy is low. You know, that's probably how that rumor got started, but yeah. Yeah, who knows, yeah. You know where that stuff goes. So a lot of mythology that's been kind of out there um, and that's really the end fight in almost everything, isn't it? the mythology that occurs at the time in the world you're in. The fake, the fake news, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to sort out. Yeah, and it's been going on forever. I mean- Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know that we're well-designed people to source information, even though we've got it all there. I don't think that we are taught in our systems, at least in large, to be curious and to explore ideas outside of our realm. 
Well, right, and I think that uh, psychedelics allows that, and if people even have basic training, and it does take training in in critical thinking, like someone says, well, I think this is true, and you go, well, well, maybe, what's your source of information, you know, what's the logic behind it, all those sort of critical thinking questions, if you're not taught that, you know, it's, or have to learn on your own the hard way, it's not something learned, so, you know, I'm 70 now, when I went to high school, it was pretty guard education. We got into that in college and uh, critical thought was extremely important. And my father said, you go to college to learn how to think, you know, you don't, you don't learn how to career, you learn how to think. Right. So I think that's definitely gone downhill in America the last you know, 50 years. And, and so people are more motivated by fake news and they latch on to belief and they believe it and aren't willing to go to the source of the facts, you know, on, on both sides of any political spectrum that goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in psychedelics, the mind quiets, all those kind of belief thoughts kind of are just silent and not, you know, <laughs> ramming your attention all the month. So other ideas can be considered that are more congruent with the data. And there's actually, this feeds in there is actually data from a psilocybin study with eating disorder patients, you know, who have this perception, their bodies are too fat, in spite of the data of what the scale says, or what the mirror says. Uh, and with what part of that is this, this circuit that has their belief is not able to integrate information, sensory information from the outside, like the, the mirror image or the scale number. Right. But the psilocybin, the nervous system is able to more take in that information and adjust the belief uh, so that uh, we think uh, could be how it maybe helps OCD and eating disorders are are like, oh, well, gee, you know, the scale says I'm only weighing 95 and that's not very much. You know, that distortion is actually the opposite of what you think with a hallucinogen that distorts more in this case, it it helps uh, remedy distortion the mind is already doing. So that's, a very interesting uh, finding. Body dysmorphia and anorexia. The addictions are, are, I I don't know anybody who doesn't have some sort of thing they're addicted to, whether it be work or power or money or food or not food or cigarettes, alcohol. TV, sex, right, you name it. Yeah, so we're needy. Yes, we are, yes. Needy people. And uh, I don't know how, it sounds like these these help us get there to places where we're not so needy right and we can be okay with ourselves and i think that's the end goal isn't it well yeah i mean you know the end goal is whatever the person wants but you know it's hard to argue that i mean who who doesn't want to be more happy more of the time Mm -hmm. i mean i think our nervous system is kind of wired to like what do you want emotionally well you want to be happy all the time i mean duh you know, that's we're wired that way. Um, yeah, so so people, uh, if they want to do that, they can they can le- they can learn to do that. But the learning of that can be very hard and involve a lot of suffering. Yeah, I people learn how to do that. Well, I did a lot of work um, just with uh, I don't know what they call it tap or NLP. Um, yeah. Just talking to myself in a kind way and tapping acupuncture points in the body while going through you know, some testing to see like what's bugging me. And uh, I did that for a good eight months or so. And it, it, it really helped. I didn't do it. Wow. With the, and it helped 
reprogram the talking. Yeah. Self-talking. And then you, you know, I would stop at a place and go, okay, I've got a feeling. I got a feeling right now and I feel really upset. I feel really angry, but I don't even know what it is. What is it? So you got to ask that question. What's going on here? And then you find out you just feel guilty because you said something to somebody a long time ago, right. years ago, maybe, and it's still bugging you. And you're like, well, what can I do about it? Can I change it? No. And then you start to move on. And it's, it's, so the talking helps, but if I, you know, if you can throw that stuff, um, you know, put some nitrous oxide in there and kick that. Yeah. No, oh. right. Yeah. Add some nas to it. No, I think that's exactly right. And, um, and the, it's not the talking, it's, I mean, talking, it, it's the verbal content because the processing of trauma, PTSD, involves going from like the, the midbrain, the limbic system, it's all emotion into the cortex, which can put labels on things. You have this intellectual, emotional integration. And until that happens, it's just doing around in the limbic system, causing disturbances and hyperarousal and intrusive memories and all that. And what you said reminded me of one of my favorite sayings. I'm never upset for the reason I think. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, if, if, if I was upset for the reason I think, I would just like take care of that reason and move on. But obviously that doesn't happen because we're upset about something else that's probably from way in the past that we don't even know what it is in the moment. You know, so that, you know, that process got you to the place where you got to that core feeling because most therapy, a lot of therapy methods is getting to the core body emotional feeling yeah and when your attention on on that it can it can relieve and move and be released more than just the thought which just keeps going in circles but right. the body sensation and then pure emotional sensation that's really the um attention that really can help movement and it, you know it takes as you know it takes discipline you know to keep doing that because it's not it's not pleasant to attend to an unpleasant emotion or body sensation Mm -hmm. you know, uh, in, in the short run. So you have to have a longer range goal and willing to, well, I to find do that. But obviously it, it pays off. I find it's better than letting it cycle. Cause that's what I, you know. Exactly. That just, it goes, no, that goes nowhere. Yeah. And if you, if you can't stop and just go, Hey, who are you? What's going on here? Why are you in there? You know, and then work yeah. with it. And, and a lot of times it's your own assumptions. Usually. Or misunderstandings, yeah. yeah. One of my favorite therapy cards, so one, one uh, frame cartoon, it was inside of a therapist's office. The therapist is slapping the patient and, and uh, the, the title is Brief Therapy. He slaps the patient and says, snap out of it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. So you, so you pretty much have to do that with yourself. Yeah. You know, like, come on, who, who are you? What, what are you trying to do here? You know, snap out of it, you, you know, over and over and over, you know, maybe you can snap out of it for two seconds and then it's going again, but you have to do that over and over and over. The challenging thing is when they're hidden, when you're like, what's going on and you don't know. It's but too vague, right? Something going on and it's thick. Usually with a little more exploration, you can get there, but, uh, you know, not always. But the, but the psychedelics really help get there because they both, you know, and psilocybin lower that whole defense mechanism process. So with MDMA, it's, it's the fear that holds those back. It's like MDMA, oh, well, that's what I'm afraid of. Okay. You know, it just comes much easier in psilocybin. It's not so easy, but it, but it, but it's possible it comes, you know, uh, and that's why it can be a problem because people can remember have unwanted 
for memories of say early childhood trauma or sexual trauma that they never had no knowledge of. And that can be very disturbing. So that's why the therapists need to be ready for those kind of things just to pop out unexpectedly. Cause I can, you know, you can imagine you think you're fine and then you have a memory of your grandparent, you know, was sexually abusing when you were two years old. That's gonna be pretty horrific. Yeah, and those things define every other move they made in their life at some level. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And their sense of self-worth. Yeah. At, at a real high level, typically. Yeah. Um, so how does somebody move on from that? I mean, a lot of people are walking around with those traumas, uh, just looking like regular people. Yeah, well, I, I, think, I think most people in this field would say, um, you know, a, a psychedelic experience, even if the therapy gives you an experience and a reframing but it really takes a, a, a practice, some sort of daily regular practice in daily life to integrate that and to have your daily life improve. And so meditation would be the obvious one uh, for anybody, you know, my, mindfulness training, because mindfulness training is so helpful during the psychedelic experience to have more skill and ability to attend to the subtle things that are going on. They're happening very quickly. So mindfulness training is good both before and after. And then depending on the person, you know, a thing like ongoing therapy or whatever lifestyle changes, you know, diet, exercise, all those things needed to be integrated in every life. Because obviously lots of people have had lots of psychedelics and they still smoke and drink and have just as much addiction or depression as before, you know, because they don't have that orientation, that therapeutic support, the skill. Uh, yeah, it's the, the, the healing is not in the drug. The drug is a nerve molecule that really doesn't care. Right. I mean, Charles Manson took LSD and murdered people. Right. It's, it's ideologically neutral. So the ideology really is more, I think, more important or necessary, more importantly than the drug itself, because they can be used in negative ways. Rare, but they, it can happen. Well, it's a powerful thing. It's like gasoline. You can put it in a car and go somewhere, or you can light a building on fire. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a matter of purpose. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Which gets into like, well, what are we? Well, we, no one else decides our purpose, but us. So maybe that's a clue as to who we are. What is my purpose? That's a good question to ask to find out who you think you are. Mm -hmm. You know, you may not have an answer, but it's a good place, good direction to look. Yeah. Or is, yeah, is there someplace, something I need to get out of this that, that. Right. Help me get better. Like if I'm going into for, Say I want to get over alcohol. That's very specific goal, and there are methods and patterns for doing that effectively. Yeah, it's like you know, in the middle of being completely lost and in, in hell. Like you know, why why the hell did I do this? I don't even I don't even remember why I'm doing this. I just it's horrible. You know, and like oh, I'm doing this to get off alcohol. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I I want to get off alcohol. So let's sort of gather together and focus and let's. But point that direction again, you know, that, that happens over and over. Mm -hmm. I think this kind of process and getting lost, finding the track, getting back on it, you know, over and over and over. Interesting. The, the guy who wrote the book, I believe Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill Wilson. Yeah. Bill Wilson was a proponent of LSD. He was, yeah. After, after AA started, after he recovered, he was a proponent of LSD, but it did not get incorporated in AA because they're against all sort of, psychoactive drug use but no he was a big proponent yeah to foster that kind of death rebirth you know uh, experience yeah right so i did it when i was younger 
um, a friend <laughs> of mine um, was talking to me about it. And so we started, I started reading all the stuff, you know, the <laughs> Larry stuff and the Lily stuff and the uh, Aldous Huxley and all of that stuff before I did it. And, and none of it prepared me for what was, was going to happen. Um, you know, I'd been involved in religion <clears throat> prior to that point, and and uh, I really, it was a heaven and hell experience um, yes. at some level, uh -huh. um, but in other levels, it was very beautiful, and it was very amazing. Uh, but, but that part, I remember just being in conflict with my own sense of what God was and all of that stuff at the time. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I think that's kind of that I would I had some experience in college, just like, okay, there appears to be no reason to live. Suicide seems just as logical as anything else. This kind of like no exit place, very mental, but very depressed down, you know. But then sort of breaking out of that into seeing, oh, the basis of the universe is spiritual, it's it's awareness, consciousness, it's not you know, matter. I'm not agnostic. You know, there is spirituality for answers. You know, the mind can't solve problems it created by itself. Right. Well, so that was that was a big breakthrough. That's a permanent sort of shift in perception. You know, I was still just had all the same hangups and neuroses and need a lot of therapy. But uh, no, extremely life changing. And Shulgin was was once asked, "Well, do psychedelics cause any permanent changes?" And his answer was absolutely just like a higher education. Yeah. Yeah. It does really flip how you think about thinking. It, it's a yeah. very good experience. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it can be for some people, not obviously not always, but I, I had a friend from high school that came back after, you know, in college and he said, Oh yeah. Acid. We had that. It was great. We got, we got six pack and took acid and drove around and looked, looked at the lights in town. It was really wonderful. Yeah. Period. That's, that's, yeah. that's it. Period. So just have, just have fun. Yeah. Get drunk and take acid and look at the lights. That's, that's it. Yeah. Well, there's probably a lot of that. I mean, I was oh, yeah, tons of the Grateful Dead. That's what happened there. What's interesting is you were involved with MDMA and really had no idea on a therapeutic level and had no idea that it was becoming a rave thing. Well, no. Well, well back in 1980, it wasn't becoming rave yet. It was later. It was. I mean, we didn't, there was no media about it until 85 mm -hmm. that I heard of. So uh, probably was going on, but more underground, but in the media, really 80, 85 really came out in the media heavy and was shut down. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. But it does good things. It, it can, certainly can, indeed. It's good in the fight. Even after it got, it became illegal, did you switch, you, you had to have switched fields or something. Uh, well, I, I just stopped doing it, and then uh, eight years later, started working with Hefter. Yeah, so I did not do any more therapy with anything. Well, ketamine a little bit after that, but not very much. Uh, yeah, so I didn't do any other clinical direct work other than a little bit of ketamine work after 1985. More, more research management with Hefter. One of the things that keeps coming up is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really happy to note that it's it seems to be coming into the corporate world more yeah let's let we'll see how that changes if it does but you know you can be mindful and greedy yeah you can be mindfully greedy yeah well <laughs> that's true and that's probably if you're going to be greedy be mindfully greedy because you'll probably yeah. get better results yeah yeah <laughs> yeah 
I, I kind of wish I had the greed gene a little bit. I'd probably be a better <laughs> pop than I am if I had if I had been like a little more striving along that line. Well, they say successful people have to be a little hypomanic, a little OCD, and a little antisocial. Oh, to be successful in business. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm too hypersocial. I think you can't. You can't. You have no greed. You're not going to succeed in business. It's not going to work. Yeah. Just give it up. You know required it's it's the superior beings have more greed that's that's how we promote it yeah yeah i would love to thank you for being out here today um is there anything else you'd like to share with with us well no just that i think that uh uh in the future it looks bright in the long run for both patients and just people in general uh my personal goal is in you know way after i'm gone would be everybody on the planet has access to this experience supervised by a guide, an experienced guide from their own culture and, and religion, if necessary. That's, I mean, that's the ultimate goal, that people have it available, you know, and then all these, all the future sci-fi shows, you know, there's, there's people doing bad stuff, there's always bad guys, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But at least I feel this, you know, MDMA and psilocybin, this, this attitude toward it, give people a chance to move in a more positive direction, which can help human culture the planet etc so you know it's not a panacea but it, but it's another another opportunity another path opens up another path to make things better you know that people can choose to go down or not yeah well your goals are right they're in line and that's beautiful yeah, yeah. What, yeah. what you're doing for the world i um i hope that we get more success along these lines with with more treatment um, I'm a Marine, so I'd like to see, you know, my brothers in arms to get treatment uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder, um, uh, just addictions in general. I think they're ruining a lot of us at different levels. Um, I know during COVID, alcohol has taken a better stance in, in, in my world. It's, it's starting to jump in and say, hey, what about me? So I finally, I just said, okay, well, November, I'm going to not drink. And I got a buddy who... Uh, it's feeling the same way. Like it starts, it starts to get a little more leverage on you than you want to give it. So I'm. Well, we all need distraction from the pandemic, don't we? It's 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 not fun to live with that thought. Yeah. So I was just separating my day. You know, like there's there's the morning and the afternoon where you don't drink, and then there's the evening where you drink. So that's two days or two parts of a day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, I just found I started waking up feeling not great and yeah, exactly. little foggy noggin all the time. I'm like, you yeah. know, I need to do better than this. I yeah, yeah. And uh, maybe I'll go do acid. No, <laughs> 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 um, I would I, I'd really have been interested in this a long time. This whole subject, if any of your other um, friends over there at the Hefter Institute or anybody you think would, would do well on this show, uh, you can send it my way. I'd love it. Okay. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. A great uh, discussion with a great depth. So this is, this is, I really enjoyed this. Thanks, Gary. Well, th well thank you, uh, Dr. Greer. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, subscribe to the Dar Garland Pepper Presents podcast. And if I could say it right, you can subscribe to it. Um, and uh, invite your friends to join uh, if you want to support it, uh, right now I'm just using support money to make this work. And so there's a little place on the Anchor app where you can say support. Um, and you can actually see it, I think, on your on your podcast things. You know, those so let me, let me say a little promotional thing. So Hefter, yeah. we have a website, H-E-F-F-T-E-R, Hefter.org. 
And there uh, are a lot of videos of uh, research subjects talking about their experiences with psilocybin yes, and how they were before and after that are very inspiring. A lot of cancer patients and one with alcoholism, a smoker. So a lot of scientific papers, a lot of information. So I encourage people to go there. And of course you can donate, you know, uh, money's yeah. always good for this work. So donate. Thank you. If you want to see this stuff uh, progress, these these research, go watch the videos. They're good. I watched them. Um, I really enjoyed the the man who had the cancer and uh, it just how it changed his life. It was mm -hmm. a really good one. I enjoyed that one a lot. I enjoyed all of them, but uh, it's just nice seeing people improved by mindful approaches to things that people are kind of afraid of, but we're actually moving in the right direction. It is, yeah. It's to know that it's possible. It's very inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. And I really wanted to get this information out here because I am from Oregon and okay. we do have a bill. Yeah. Uh, and I, I felt like our community, our people here in Oregon need as much information as possible. Absolutely, especially in Oregon. Yeah. I I I've been involved with some of those people. Yeah, it's a very complex thing, but uh yeah, but but uh you don't have to be mentally ill to have this treatment, anybody could go under the Oregon model. If it passes, anybody would be eligible to have this with, you know, with a trained guide from their culture. So that that really kind of fits that bill for Oregon. So that's pretty great. It's wonderful. Yeah. This is my first Zoom. So I don't, normally I'm just talking and I'm just like, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, I'm closing out the thing. And right now I don't even know what I should do. Like, should I do a dance or a thing? You know, I don't know. Um, no, you'll, you'll find your way. I guess I will. This is that's what this has been. Um, it's been a journey. Yeah. Uh, just lost my job in because of COVID after 20 years. And oh, wow. okay. I'm in the process of doing a reinvention. And uh, this is this is it. And uh, I really thank you for being on here today. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm to the moon. Okay, <laughs> great. Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you and bless you and have a have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. Thank y'all. Fuck, are you kidding me?